0: I'm curious about you um, in terms of you have, you're in a doctoral program what kind of racist things have you faced in your education? Have you ever uh, heard things like, wow, I didn't expect this from a
1: Mexican or I didn't expect this or like that kind of comment? Um, Fortunately, it hasn't been like that blatant. Um, And I, I would say, I would say I haven't really, I have, I've definitely. Yeah, I definitely haven't been subject to anything that bad. I think, or if, if I've even been subject to anything like that, um, there are some ambiguous cases. Um, there is it, within academia. I think there is sort of a there is sort of a tendency, though, to kind of um, academia sort of gives you gives a person the capacity to kind of so i mean you, you look you look at lots of different kinds of things under under sort of a microscope or mm-hmm. n- yeah right mm-hmm. and there's funny ways to do that which can sort of express themselves as as dehumanizing in a way i think yeah at least in my opinion i'm i, I re i recall this one occasion where uh uh, I saw a presentation by a linguist, uh, a sociolinguist and, uh, about, um, in- English di- like in or Chicano dialects of English. Mm. And, um, I mean, it, it was an interesting talk. It was, it was an interesting talk. It was, it was just a, it was a sociolinguistic talk just basically talking about the, the, the ways that um, English is sort of expressed, the English language is spoken by Chicanos and, uh, and what the particular markers are for Chicano English and what those markers are supposed to, to mean, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and how they're supposed to be interpreted. And this was, it it was, it was interesting. uh, But, it, the, the content was interesting, but it was also interesting that the, the presentation was conducted by the, by a white woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Um, so uh, someone who was definitely not within the community, but who decided, you know, they, they, they'd been interested in the community for, for some reason at the time. And this was an older white woman too. Uh, and the way that, the way that the, so she, she one of her examples or an example she used consistently was this specific study she did with uh, a Chicano girl who was probably like 12 or something. You know, she had various recordings of, of this, of this girl who, and you know, she probably had her IRB, you know, that she did to, to, to collect this data. Um, but yeah, she, she had various like recordings and, um, it probably, I mean, it probably wasn't intended, but, you know, and as you're saying, like, maybe, maybe intention isn't really the point, but the way that she would talk about this woman, it was, I mean, it reminded me a lot of like how, you know, zoologists talk about, you know, animals. So, and that that was something that was a, a little bit offensive to me, uh, being in that, you know, seeing that presentation and kind of interpreting that element of it. Um, yeah, so that, that's definitely something that exists, kind of putting basically academia, sort of putting certain, you know, putting humans, you know, under the microscope in in kind of funny dehumanizing ways, uh, and then kind of slapping on this sort of ethnic group, uh, category on them. Um, yeah, so that, that, yeah, there's definitely that. Besides that, there's, there, there are, I guess there are certain kinds of interactions between, between people from different ethnic groups that might also um, qualify as you know, expressions of racism in that case. Uh, we don't, unfortunately in linguistics, we don't really have a lot, we don't have a, too many um, uh, African-Americans or even just blacks generally in linguistics. We have some, but it's not, it's not a big community. Um, but there might be, I think there's more of a case to be made when, when you see interactions between whites and, and Asians. Yeah. Since there are a lot of Asians and yeah, I think, I mean, I can't, I can't think of specific examples, but just thinking of my gen, like my experiences, my general experiences, I I, I think there's definitely something going on in terms of, mm. uh, of devaluing the, the uh contributions of of asians to to the field for certain or at least their you know their capacity to do well i actually yeah i i have a friend who was uh who's um hong konger who Mm. kind of told me once that he felt like like linguistics even itself even like linguistics is sort of is sort of catered to whites in a way I didn't. I didn't really ask him a lot, you know, how about how he how he thought that. But yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something there.
0: You know what you said kind of reminds me. I don't know if you've heard the story of Minnick Wallace with like Robert Perry. Mm. Um, mm. I think in it, it back like 1897, 1896. Um, Robert Perry was his explorer. Went to um, Alaska and that region, the indigenous group of them, and he brought them to the Americas for this exhibit, um, the American Museum of Natural History, and um, had them in a glass case, right, and had them just do their daily lives. And at that time, people like Sigmund Freud, Edward S., you know, Sigmund Freud, Einstein, um, they came to this exhibit to watch the mysterious peoples of the North. Um, live their lives. Um, Minnick's father was there and his brother and his sister-in-law and, and a group of them. And we, I, I just remember that, like, we live in this country where this was happening by white people, where they took indigenous, put them in a museum so that they could live their daily life while they were watching them in a scientific kind of, right, like, They're microscopic organisms. Zoo animals. Exactly. Um, Minnick went back to Greenland for some reason um, to do some kind of research with somebody. And when he came back, his father's body, I don't know what happened to his father, had been defleshed so that the anatomical structures of the indigenous could be seen. And he was laid out like this in the opening of the museum. And there is a very famous picture, I believe it was taken by Edward S. Curtis, but uh, Minnick is standing and watching his father's, you know, defleshed body in front of the museum. And I think that we forget the history of what kind of people took over this land. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like this was not this was not a normal sense of like, just putting a knee to the, to the throat. This was like, they took a person's flesh, ripped it off and hung it in a museum. They put human beings into a glass capsule while Freud and his boys were observing the kind of psychiatric tendencies of of these people. Like that's the kind of white, the white devil that allowed the kind of thing to happen to George in present-day America. And that kind of dehumanizing of a person is such a devilish act. It really is. I don't think that people are, you know, just to quote Cornell West, I don't think that white people are devils, but they act devilish. Mm. Really, really do. And I cannot, you know, when I look at whites these days, I just think, there's something wrong with you. And I needed, I need to get out of that mindset for myself. That's not healthy. You know, I, I should not be there, but it, it's a really, really terrible task. You know, I start dehumanizing whites. I definitely do.
2: That, that's also similar to the lynching that's been happening up until like the 1940s of uh, blacks. And what they did was there's pictures of it, even in postcards, actually where black men and black women would be lynched by of white people and they kind of use this as uh entertainment and an amusement it's like watching a sports and there's like pictures of this little white girl just staring at the body and just smiling at it and um yeah these were in postcards you know I and these that. postcards get shipped like across the country so these uh black bodies were just like traveling, you know, throughout the country. And what they do with the genitals is like, they'll just take it apart and they'll frame it like a, a trophy, like hunting trophy, you know, for animals. And they wouldn't even do that to a puppy or a dog, but right. they would do it. I mean, like white people love animals and puppies. Like they would never harm an animal, right? Like, exactly. It was surely like uh-huh. lynch a black person and for a form of amusement. And I know that there's no, like, exactly lynching to, the, to this day, but there's video cameras of black people getting like, punched, getting killed, getting shot by the police, or, like, black people fighting. And that gets circulated to a lot of people, and a lot of white people, like, eat it up and just find that amusing.
0: I actually think people don't lynch anymore because it's just too much hard work. I think a little, the people have become a little lazy. I think they've found better ways, technically logically to to kill yeah um, you know what i mean like you know for us takashi there were lynchings of chinese yeah exactly in the 1800s right in la right in that uh what's it called i forget what they called the corridor of the blacks or something like that yeah they lynched us you know so i don't put it past the whites
2: yeah it's like i think during that time uh, you get fined more if you killed a horse, then if you were to kill a Chinese right. person.
0: Right. Right.
2: So it's, it's like our lives were less than an animal. Yeah. It's like dehumanizing. Uh, it's so frustrating, but, but I don't know. It's like, I think, I, I think, I don't know. It's like, yeah, I read about these things. Um, I, I feel like I've managed to not get too frustrated to the point where it's like ruining my life. I feel mm. like if it was me like 10 or 15 years ago, i would be like, oh, fuck these white people, like, why are they like, you know, but I think over time, I I don't know if it's, like, maturity, or if I feel like I've been able to differentiate, like, you know, like, the readings from re- reality, even though, like, it, it is based on reality, um, just, I don't know, I, I think I've managed to, I don't know what the proper term is, but, like, not affect my daily routine, you know, because it's, it's also important for us to be, like, healthy, and absolutely mentally well you know because it's 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 good to learn about these things and people i feel like people do need to learn about it but at the same time it shouldn't uh like attack our humanity and restrain us from our daily activities or survival you know
0: i think that blacks in the united states have this unique kindness to them that they're there is this uh a grandmother i met once in los angeles of one of my students and i remember it was the week where her brother had just been killed and we were doing this unit on race and politics and all that stuff and she came in for a parent interview and we just started talking and she told me that she forgave the white man who who did that to her brother a white cop and um And I remember I was pretty young at the time, right? I was in my twenties and I asked her how that was even possible. And she said that, and it kind of goes back to the idea of love, right? She's like, you can still love the human being behind the devil. And I thought that was a fucking weird statement.
2: Mm. I still
0: remember that to this day. Yeah. And how to give and extend love to white folks, despite the knowledge of their cruelty, um, I don't think that I have the wisdom or the the will yet to get there, but I strive towards what she told me. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, let's let's assume that Biden wins it. You know, let's say that our next leader is Biden. I'm curious to know what is our responsibility if we get a so-called liberal in the office and he's gonna say all these things like he believes in whatever it is, now how do we hold him accountable? And I'm curious to know what this next kind of political engagement is gonna look like, you know, for us just on a day-to-day. Yeah, I'm curious to know what you all think about that. Will things change if Biden's in office? Not Not in terms of like how the policies change, but like how will you change? I I don't think I'll change. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great answer. It's a good, honest answer. Yeah, yeah, I don't
1: think anything will change either. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I'll keep
2: learning and doing my thing, but I don't know. I I don't think it's going to really affect me in a way (laughs) if Biden wins or not. Um, I'm sure, like, I I don't know if if things might be better for certain people if he wins. I would hope so, but I, I don't know.
0: Do you imagine that uh police shootings of blacks will just continue for years and years to come until you we have kids and our kids have kids or will there be a point where where laws are made to restrict that kind of behavior where we we actually start to indict cops on the spot where we just we really do start to change the infrastructure and the culture of the police force or like you said like if we get this person off, it's not going to change our behavior, myself included, right? When, when do you think that that will happen? That change in the institution?
2: Well, I'll tell you this. Even during Obama's time, there were still a lot of cops killing black people. Oh, yeah. It, it, that made no difference at all. And I don't know if it has increased or has stayed the same when Trump came in, and I don't think it matters. Um, I would hope that it changed, but it's just me hoping, and that's not really... Making much of a difference, honestly. Right. I, I don't know if this whole uh, riot or revolution or whatever you want to call it that's been happening right now um, across the country is going to make a difference. I would hope it it does, but I I don't know. I don't know if will if they'll be if the police will be more vigilant of black people because of this incident, or if they'll you know go the other way. I I don't know like what, what would happen.
1: I I've been throwing this idea out to some people that. Um, I wonder if it would be possible to sort of replace the current system of law enforcement with a a nationalized version Mm. because this is another way that, that sort of political deception works, right? Like, so, I mean, we have this problem of, of, of these shootings, of these like murders basically and blame political blame basically goes to, it can go to political parties. Uh, it can go to just the, the, just the general state of the country. Right. But it never gets attributed to particular states. Right. Which is, and you know, law enforcement there, that's, that's where their funding comes from. Right. When uh, right. The, the Minneapolis, police department they were they're funded by the city at the city and maybe at the state level right or i'm not i'm not sure how i'm not sure how that works but it that's but i know it's maximally that right Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of hard to and in that sense it's very difficult to kind of place blame with the to directly attribute the actions of of law enforcement in that regard with how the whole country is being run right i mean mm. i mean we should be able to do that right we want to do that right we do complain that you know when this when things like this happen it's it's indicative of a of a of a na- national problem right but when you when you bring in like the legal ease i guess like you can't you can't really make that attribution right there's not really a there's not really a uh a real formal framework for us to really do that when it comes down to it well the the police department was is hired by the they they're sort of managed by either the city or they're managed by the state by that particular state of Minnesota right so i think i think it might actually solve a little bit of the problem if we did replace like state with state law enforcement or city law enforcement actually with a, with some kind of nationalized variant, then you could actually attribute things to the nation state. Then you could actually say, this is, this is definitely Trump's fault. Right. Mm -hmm. Because right. When things like this happen, like you could blame the president or at least, you know, the, you know, whatever heads of, of the nation state that there are. Right they actually would have to take blame for it. Cause as, as it is now, like it, it's, I mean, you know, Trump could kind of dismiss it as like, this is, these are state's problems or something like that. Right. But with a nationalized like law enforcement, then you could actually say like, no, this is, this is, you know, this is definitely the country's fault. Right. Um, I, th- I think that's, that's actually a way to do it. Um, but yeah, so I use I sometimes throw that idea out to the people. But I I also don't see that happening anytime soon.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, where you just have national guard troops just, you know.
1: I mean, so some countries do that. Like Panama, Panama yeah. does that. Yeah. I mean, with small with small countries it's easier to do. Uh-huh. Right? uh-huh. Yeah. You know, the the law enforcement is actually like the army. Right. right? right. Because, you know, that's that's just simpler right um, i don't know how many other i don't i don't know how common that is with larger countries i i I'd have to like, do some research on that but yeah um and actually it's i i feel like it's a bit um it's better for the for the image of uh, for of of law enforcement too when there is sort of a convergence with with uh like the military or for um, or for, or just for whatever form of law enforcement, the, the nation state would implement actually, I think that it's, it actually does something, does something good. There's probably a lot of bad things too. I don't know yet, but, but, um, cause I know in Panama, I think there is a bit more, there's a bit more, uh, there's a better relationship between, um, law enforcement and, um, civilians. I think that's, that's something I noticed in, in Panama when I, when I was there. Um because there was this sense that uh the there well there is more of this belief that the uh the law enforcement there or the army was working you know for for the the interests of the people yeah. and uh yeah that that's that's sort of indicative of like a better relationship in that way right um yeah, I think actually when you do that the the nation, the, the heads of the state, you know, are forced to take more responsibility for things that the, the military does. Right. So, yeah. So the, the, the problems that we have are really, are really problems of divisions of res, divisions of, um, responsibility. Right. Like, I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't blame Trump for these things, for these things, because, I mean, he doesn't have to take responsibility for it, right, because it's the states. Same thing with the coronavirus, right, you know, same thing with the coronavirus, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to take responsibility for the coronavirus response, right, because that's all up to the states. Yeah. I don't know. So I, I don't know. I'm sort of a federalist in that sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely <laughs> yeah. <a> federalist. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: You know, I think it's an intriguing idea. However, I wonder what that looks like when you have an empire with the largest arsenal in the entire world also policing its citizens. Um, it takes a leap of faith from its citizens to be able to say, okay... You can, you can have your tank and your bazooka and patrol the streets if you want. But you know, Takashi, I read that um, article that you posted, the James Baldwin mm-hmm. interview in Esquire. And um, he was asked, what do you think uh, one of the solutions is to these issues of brutality? And he said, um, I think he said something like, there's no one solution, but the people who are in the force should be living where they're controlling and the interviewer said yeah but you know the policies right now are that the cops are not actually allowed to live in the places that they patrol and baldwin's answer to that was that well that's because of white supremacy and you just want to dominate us but it's an intriguing idea right like if you want to patrol that precinct that municipality then you got to be in it with the people you have to know who those people are be in community with them and hopefully that will create a, a, a disincentive to just murder citizens. But, um, yeah, I don't know.
1: I, you know, it's interesting cause I, I wonder what the reason for doing things that way is, uh-huh. right? Like why do, I, I don't know what it is. Panama, Panama does the same thing. Like, uh, like even, even with their, you know, nationalized like law enforcement, um, usually, you know, the, the police, The police in the cities—they actually come from like rural towns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they come from outside the city, so they—they—they even commute. They'll like make a big commute to work. Actually, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's definitely what they do. And I don't—I don't know what the—I can imagine what the reason is. Yeah, yeah.
2: I—I would think the reason would be that if they're trying to catch a criminal in that area, and if they like, uh, if the criminals know who the police is or where he lives, he'll most likely be targeted easily if he lives like in the neighborhood. But that's just my guess.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. But I imagine it has something to do with the fact that one of the values of the police force is about this sense of, like, objectivity. We are not here to judge people or, like, you know, enforce the law differently. We are just looking at the law. And if you're breaking that law, then we're going to break your neck versus a more subjective experience with the law that we are here as a community together. But I, I imagine that's something to do with that false objectivity um, that the United States loves, right? There, there are objective realities and we are the arbiters of that, of that reality versus, again, a more nuanced look at society, which is, no, I don't think there is this objective reality here in the police force that uh, you treat people differently based on the color of their skin and, and so on and so forth. Fucking disgusting creatures.
2: so just a boss shit in the prison, too. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. We love punishment, though. I know we do. Oh, we love punishment. Even in schools. <laughs> yep. Yeah, punishment. I feel we should use shame a little bit more, as a, you know, like not punishment, but just a shame culture. It's kind of like when I'm in Berkeley and I'm at a restaurant and there are like five different bins to to divvy up your, your remains, your trash. I do feel shame, right? Like if I take something and I put it in the wrong bin and therefore I act accordingly. There's, there's, a, there's a moral imperative there and I wanna save the environment of course and that gets into my consciousness, but it is based on shame and public account- accountability. Um, I don't think people need to be walking around with guns. It's, it's insane that people walk around with guns. Like, if you go to a military base in the United States, like Camp Pendleton, nobody's fucking walking around with guns because you have to go to the arsenal or the armory. And if you go to the armory as a soldier, you have to get three signatures. After you get the three signatures, then you go to a place where you can carry around a gun and then practice. Those are the most highly trained people on this fucking earth. Why do we think that just your average citizen would be able to walk around with a loaded gun. That's like insane to me. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. One
2: of the schools and the nonprofit I used to work for, I know they were trying to do a campaign in LA where like the 1% of the city's money or like the law enforcement money should be going to, um, like other things like community centers and they propose like instead of having having police in your neighborhood have uh, people what they call uh, peace builders or peacekeepers and what these people are are they're kind of like they kind of like serve the neighborhood and they're actually people from the community Uh, they could be people who were formerly incarcerated that have good relationship with gang members Uh, that's people in the, the area um, they're kind of like the you know the gang interventionist conflict resolution the skills in uh, restorative justice or transformative justice and yeah it's, it's that would be like an ideal situation honestly because getting someone actually from the community that lives there that is that someone um, the people respect the neighborhood is not afraid of and trusts. right um, building that strong relationship is key and if you're a police, uh, you are automatically are gonna get labeled as someone that's not to be trusted, especially in those communities.
0: You know, Carlos, out there in Chicago, I know that the violence interrupters have had a lot of success in just stopping shootings. And, you know, that's what they do. They get former people who have been involved and they get them out on the streets and they, they form bonds and communities with people still, still in the game. And their only objective is to stop shootings from happening. Um, and it's, it's a really cool organization. I don't know if it's still being funded very well, but I know that in the early 90s, all the way up until the mid 2000s, or the early 2000s, it was still going pretty strong. Um,
1: That's cool, I, I didn't really know about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a really cool documentary called, I think it's called Violence Interrupters. I would check it out. It won a bunch of awards, but it, it's all about Chicago and the kind of work that they do. It's really, really nice. Um, I used it in a class many years back, but you want to check it out. It's really nice. It's it's cool thing to look at.
1: Yeah, that that'd be cool. I know, I know of I know of uh, other groups that are kind of do similar work. Um, yeah, I knew I knew a girl who led this. I'm sorry. I knew a woman who, who led this, um, she had this sort of nonprofit or this project that she did, which, which sounds a lot like that, which is called the peace, peacekeeping project. And, um, she would have, she would have these volunteers trained in conflict resolution and then they would have to like go out in the community and sort of practice that sort Mm -hmm. of implement their practices and resolving conflicts. Yeah. I don't know of specific examples they, they underwent, but that was the general idea. Yeah, so that's kind of, that's that's cool. I, I thought that was, I thought that idea was cool. I didn't know there yeah, were did. older groups that did that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I would say those kind of programs that we mentioned give me hope that, um you know, the question you addressed, uh, Daniel, about, you know, will it actually re- reduce, like, cops killing black people, right? I feel like by implementing these programs and getting it more, I don't know if mainstream is the right word. Cause I feel like if the mainstream people took it over, I feel like they would co-opt it in a certain way, but I just feel like these kind of programs would help make changes to that kind of uh, problem that we're, we've been having.
0: Yeah. Community involvement, mutual association without guns, somehow if we can get rid of the guns.
2: Yeah. Conflict resolution skills.
0: Uh-huh. But, you know, the thing about this country is it, the gun issue is just fucking crazy, right? Like, because of the amendment, well, this side is allowed to carry guns. So then this side, the state, right, the repressive forces, they got to carry guns. And as long as that is the case, I feel like we're going we're gonna to have many, many shootings for all of our lives. Um, you look at countries where guns are banned.
1: It's a lot different. It's a lot yeah. more civil, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah there, there's there's still violence, but there's fewer casualties. <laughs> right, exactly. Of course, exactly. Yeah.
0: People are still beating the shit out of each other all over the world. Yeah, don't get me wrong. But
2: Yeah, they're, they're still stabbing and poisoning each other, but, you know, there's no fine. shit.
0: I'm fine with poisons and stabbings. If you want to do that, hey, well, we should talk about it. But if you have a gun, like if I had a gun... I've been teaching for a little over 10 years. I would definitely have shot at least 3 people. Not fatally, but I would have definitely shot them like in the toe. Yeah. Un unbelievable.
2: Hey, we were close to getting guns, you know. Remember that like proposal teachers were going to get guns to yeah, stop yeah, mass shooting. Yeah.
0: You know that there's 22 universities in the United States where professors can carry guns?
2: Really? Yep, <laughs> that's, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> well are aren't those like the universities in the states that allow open carry?
0: yeah yeah definitely
2: yeah that
0: that makes sense that's insane
2: Well, this was a good conversation,
0: yeah, um Takashi, thank you for your time. I know you're going through a lot i'm I'm glad we get to talk to you in these yeah,
2: parties. no, thank you. I was uh, before this uh, pod actually a couple minutes. Uh, my cousin was over, and we were actually talking about similar things that we discussed here. Actually, I was <laughs> actually going to have him on, but he's like, "Nah, I'm good."
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it was
2: it was it was uh, it was pretty cool to be able to talk to you know family member or just someone like in person, right? Know, yeah. To discuss these kind of topics because mm-hmm. I feel like we have these thoughts and feelings in ourselves. But we don't have like a, a platform or a space to express it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know about for you guys. I don't know if you guys talk about it with the people around you. Um, I know quarantine makes it harder to communicate um, to people with people. So um, just by not being ex- not being able to express ourselves tr- like truly or free- freely uh, can also have an impact on us too
0: yeah definitely I think I think of this space as as that outlet definitely for me in terms of like what are these issues what are the deeper issues going on politically right psychologically personally um that I do get to just kind of riff on with you all um and it's turned out to be a very intriguing project I don't know it's 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 pretty interesting for me I think
2: all right you guys that's all All I got um but thank you guys for being on the pod and then well, um, yeah, we'll check in again uh, next week. All right. Good. All right. Take it easy until then. All right. Bye, you guys. Bye. Right, bye.